What does it mean to be reformed? We work our way down the funnel toward the narrower parts, from Christian to Protestant and now to reform. And these are not to set us in opposition to other people. They're to bring clarity to what we believe, what we believe the scriptures teach. There's a difference between something being essential for salvation and something still being important. I think one of the challenges today is that a lot of people try and put everything that's not in the first bucket out of the second. So if it's not essential to believe something for salvation, then why are we even debating it or arguing about it? But that's a false choice. We should want to believe what Scripture teaches, not just the bare minimum that's required to have faith in Christ and to have eternal life, but God's truth has been revealed to us, and we should want to explore that truth and to know what it says. Jacob Arminius was a man who was opposed to some of the teachings of Luther and the Reformers. He specifically didn't accept their reading of what Scripture says about how God saves people. And so in a theological paper that he began and that was completed by his students after his death, he made five statements. There's a spark of good in every person. And that small bit of good, though not enough to save them, is enough to lead them back to God. Those who follow that good, that inner light, recognize their sinfulness, repent and commit to obedience, are then saved or elected by God. Jesus' death on the cross actually paid for the sins of all people who have ever lived. The Holy Spirit, using that spark, that light, that goodness within all people, woos them toward himself. And then people have the opportunity to accept or reject those spiritual advances. And finally, salvation can be lost by turning away from the faith or backsliding into grievous sin. Those are the five doctrines that were laid out in the paper by Jacob Arminius and his students and followers. And these doctrines, all five of them, are unbiblical and harmful to Christians. So John Calvin and the other reformers objected to those five points and desired to clarify what the Bible actually teaches about each one. If you've heard the description before, the five points of Calvinism, that's where these came from. Calvin himself would have hated that title because it's the Bible and not him who's the source of these five points. And there were many other human authors involved in clarifying these matters in an effort to correct the five errors of Arminius. Now, there are some serious doctrinal benefits here in having truth, as I mentioned before, but there are also real practical benefits attached to these specific doctrines. We want them to be biblical, so that's the most important part. But because these doctrines are biblical, as we work through each of them, you'll see that these doctrines are really important in the Christian life for having assurance of faith, for being able to explain the problem of the evil, of evil, how an all-good and all-powerful God can allow evil to exist. These doctrines are important for consistency within the worldview. These five fit together. You may have heard of something called a four-point Calvinist, and we laugh good-natured but kind of struggle with that because these five fit together very carefully to create a consistent testimony from Scripture. And these five doctrines, going back to what it means to be Protestant, these five doctrines give all the glory to God. So let's work our way through them, what we would call the five points of Calvinism. 
The first is total depravity, that all of our being is spiritually corrupt, dead, and affected by sin. There is no part of us that is not impacted by the fall. There's no little light, little amount of goodness left within us. Yes, we're made in the image of God, but that has been corrupted in the fall. And so we can do nothing good. We cannot aid to our salvation with just what's inside of us. The Bible teaches this over and over again, that Adam's sin results in uh, spiritual death and physical deaths for all of us. The Bible teaches that every part of us is affected by the fall. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it cannot, I'm sorry, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, The Bible teaches that the unregenerate, before we're saved, we are slaves to sin. Titus 3, we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3, 9, uh, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one, quoting the Psalms there. Uh, And the Bible teaches that sinful man simply cannot do good. Jeremiah 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. It can't happen. Uh, Matthew uh, 7, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. Uh, John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We are completely and totally dead in sins and trespasses. We are in a type of slavery to sin and death that we could never break ourselves. There's no little bit of light born into us that if we just follow that, we'll end up with God. We've got to have something from the outside brought into us because there is nothing in here that That is going to lead me to God. Second is unconditional election. This is the idea that before creation, God chose a group of people who would be saved, not based on anything that they would do, but only based on his desire, his good pleasure to save them. God's people, uh, after the fall, we all deserve death. So if you want to talk about what's fair, what's fair is we would all be condemned to hell because we've all rebelled against God. And in Adam, we all fell. But what God chose to do for no reason, no one deserved it. He chose to do it for no reason, except that he wanted to. His own pleasure was to take some of those people who deserve death and bring them alive in him. So the Bible teaches that God has an elect people. Matthew 11, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord said in his heart, in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then it goes through that chain of salvation that those that God alone 
predestined. God alone called, and God alone justified, and God alone will glorify. The Bible teaches that he chose these people before creation, and so it's not based on what we would do. It's not as though God looks into the future and says, oh, well, the ones that I elect are the ones who are going to choose me. Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Revelations 13, 8, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life was slain. Romans 9, 16, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Jesus says it plainly in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And of course, the Bible teaches that it's God's will that determines election. In Exodus 33, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then, of course, the entire middle section of Romans chapter 9, which I'm not going to read here. But if you haven't read that before, go to Romans 9, start at uh, verse 10 and read through to verse 24. And God is so clear. And he uses the example of Jacob and Esau. He uses the example of Moses and Pharaoh, that it's not based on what these people would do. It's not based on their choices. It's based on God's choices because he is sovereign. And scripture tells us again and again that our God is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. And as he has planned, so it shall be. And as he has purposed, so it shall stand. For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? Jesus said with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God is completely sovereign over his world, and that includes salvation, those that he would elect and ultimately call unto himself. Next is limited atonement. This is also called particular atonement or redemption. We say limited because the uh, the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P, spells out these five points we're making. But limited atonement is not really about limited. It's about particular, that there's a certain group of people who sin Christ's death paid for. That group in the last, the uh, those who are unconditionally elected, not on the basis of their own doing, but on God, that when Jesus died for sins, he didn't die for all the sins of everyone who ever lived. He died for the sins of those elect, those people who are going to be saved. So we know that Christ is the one who does the saving. Uh, we're told that from our introduction to Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels, that he will save his people from their sins. And First Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh, uh, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ is the basis of our salvation, all of it, the reconciliation with God, the justification, the, the legal uh, payment for our sins, and sanctification, us being made holy as redeemed people. Christ is the basis of all of this. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's the one, uh, by his grace, that we were justified. He's the propitiation for our sin, it says. That's the, that God is angry and hates sin, and uh, something has to happen to turn God's anger away so that God's anger would be turned from us and his happiness, his reconciliation would be turned back to us again. Christ is the basis for all of this. We also know that not everyone is saved, and that's why unlimited atonement isn't biblical and couldn't even work. Because if Jesus died for the sins of 
all people, not just his elect, but all people, then all people's sins would be paid for. All people would have eternal life because we talked about double jeopardy before. God's not going to punish the same sins twice. And what happens is if you say, well, Jesus paid for all of those sins, but they have to receive that forgiveness. What you're really saying is that Jesus died for all sins except the sin of unbelief. And that's a sin that people have to handle on their own. Well, we can't handle any sin on our own. The sin of unbelief, which was present at birth, which is manifested often throughout our lives as we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We fail to trust him. We fail to believe the things that he has said. We need Christ to have paid for the sin of unbelief as well. And if Christ paid for that sin, as he did pay for all sins, then all people for whom Christ died would inherit the kingdom, would have eternal life. And that's not what the Bible teaches. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Uh, John 17 is a really good passage to go to about this because Jesus talks a lot about his people, the ones that God has given him. In John uh, chapter 10, uh, Jesus talks about his sheep who hear his voice and know him and follow him and that uh, no one will snatch them out of his hand. So while the verses like John 3.16 are absolutely true, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, that's not the question. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That's absolutely true. The question is, who will believe in him? And the ones who will are God's elect, those whom he draws to himself in faith. And again, we have a human reaction, which is to say, well, that's not fair. Um, what's fair is that we would all inherit death. And we don't know who God's elect are. You can't know by looking at someone on the outside. And so it doesn't change our evangelism whatsoever. Our desire is that we would tell the good news of the gospel to everyone and that God would be pleased to use that to draw his own people to himself. So John 1, John 3, they help us uh, understand how to reconcile these two things of the limited nature of Christ's atonement or the particular nature that his sins or that his death paid for a very specific set of sins all the sins of the people who belong to him. They did not pay for the sins of those who do not have faith and who will not ultimately inherit the kingdom. Fourth is irresistible grace. This is back to this idea of how the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ, that the Holy Spirit inwardly calls the elect. That's what we call regeneration, changes our hearts, takes away our stony heart, gives us a heart of flesh, gives us the gift of faith, as the Bible says, which then we have to exercise. We do have to respond in faith. We have to take hold of the promises of God. We have to trust in Christ. We're not just passive in our salvation. We have an active role, but the Holy Spirit has to do this work in us first so that we can respond to the call of God. If we're dead in our sins, he has to make us alive so that we can then reach out to God in faith. And what irresistible grace says is everyone who the Holy Spirit makes alive will respond to God in faith. The Holy Spirit is not an ineffective wooer. The Holy Spirit doesn't take people who are dead in their sins and make them alive for no good reason so that then they fail to exercise that faith. The Holy Spirit's work in salvation is to regenerate um, because we're saved by mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, as it says in Titus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And that work is effective. Back to that Romans 8 passage I read. Those whom God predestined, and you follow that chain, it's an unbreakable chain from link to link that ends up with us being glorified. Romans 8 is a great place to go read about that.
And finally, perseverance of the saints. The idea that the elect are kept securely in the faith by the power of God and so are assured of heaven. Now, uh, Hebrews 6 talks about people who give the appearance of having faith and who fall away. And we've all unfortunately experienced people like that. It breaks our heart to see people who've been a part of the church, people who've professed faith, but it turned out they didn't actually have it. And they go back to the world and their outer behavior matches their inner behavior, which was still rebellion against God. What perseverance of the saints is about is those who actually have faith, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And again, only the Spirit of God can know that for certain. We have good uh, fruit and signs that we can look to as evidence, but only the Spirit of God knows for certain. Those who have that faith, those who have been regenerated, will always persevere because that perseverance happens not by their own good works, not by their own efforts or their own desire. It happens by the power of God. Jesus says none of his will be taken from his hand, that he and the father are one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And my favorite at the in there in uh, Romans 8, what shall separate us or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through the list that covers absolutely everything that exists. And Paul concludes nothing. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Again, because our perseverance is not based on our obedience, though we will become more and more obedient. It's not based on our growth in wisdom, though we will grow more and more wise. It's based only on the power of God. And that's why we can be certain that we'll persevere because it's not in our hands, but in his.